welcome to the Remote Work Drive podcast with your host, Jessica Malnick. Stay tuned to learn how to manage remote teams that are effective, collaborative, and happy. Hello, my name is Nick Gray, and I started a company called Museum Hack, and now I wrote this book called The Two-Hour Cocktail Party, where I'm trying to help people learn how to host events. I can't wait to talk about events and parties and meetups. I love it. I personally read your book, Nick, The Two-Hour Cocktail Party, a couple months ago, and I'm super, super excited to chat with you. Actually, it's one of my goals for this year is to actually start doing more of my own events and my own kind of cocktail parties. Um, but before we kind of get into everything within this episode, I wanted to kind of see what's the most exciting thing that you're up to right now. Oh my God, right now? I mean, I'm on a mission to help 500 people host their first event. And so when I launched my book, I said, look, I don't care about book sales, reviews, whatever. I just, it changed my life to learn how to host events. I am not an extrovert. And I learned how to do this. Uh, and so I'm getting closer to that 500 goal. I think I'm at like 425 now. People that have read my book and sent me a selfie after their party. So that's like my number one goal. That's my goal. I love it. So is the way you're tracking it based off of people who've sent a selfie from within the book? It's only if they send me a selfie. So that's frustrating, right? Because I meet people sometimes like, oh my God, I loved your book. I read it at a house of party. I was like, why don't you tell me that? But yes, I count if they send me an email and then sometimes I get to talk to people the day after their party. And that's a lot of fun for me as well. Yeah, I love it. And you have hosted so many different events over the years. And you have a lot of really, really great tips within your book. One of the ones that I actually think is even more interesting than anything else is how insistent you are on icebreakers. Um, yes. And I feel like icebreakers can be really, really awkward if you don't yes. have them. What are some of your best tips when it comes to do's and don'ts? Icebreakers get a bad reputation, right? Because people do them poorly. And especially for introverts or those with social anxiety, icebreakers can be nerve wracking. So I think about icebreakers, I mean, I've led thousands of icebreakers and I've evolved my thinking around this. My current thinking that I do for all my events that I advise people is that your first icebreaker is just like a practice icebreaker to just like a green level, a safe one. It's not, here's the mistake. Do not make it a brain teaser. Do not try to stump everyone with some definitive, subjective, super specific thing. So I even ask at my thing, I'll be like, hey, what is one of your favorite things to eat for breakfast? Note that it's one of your favorites. So it's like, you know, it's not specific. I'm not asking them what's your favorite business book or something like that. But that's the gist of what I do. I lead these icebreakers and I do easy ones at the beginning of an event when there's no rapport built up, when the room is a little cold. And then after people warm up and start to mix and mingle, then I do what's called a value additive icebreaker where everybody's answer makes the whole room feel smarter. Suffice it to say that the piece of advice I'd say for your listeners is you don't need a long list of a thousand icebreakers. You need a couple icebreakers that make everyone comfortable and willing to share so that they'll want to go meet more people. What have you done or done an icebreaker, by the way, that you like thought was really good? What are some other kind of mistakes that you think, I mean, you kind of mentioned one of them, which is trying to stump people or 
like over almost like overthinking the icebreakers and I can know I'm guilty of that myself are there any other mistakes that you see people make when it comes to icebreakers where it's like oh man someone maybe replied to that in a way that you didn't expect like maybe someone talks about how like you know you ask a question and they take it in a different turn and they talk about how like their dog died or something else that's a total downer yes oh my gosh here's one of the biggest mistakes people make when they lead an icebreaker they don't go first and then they don't say which order the icebreakers are going to go. So as an example, a bad example would be, hey, we're going to do an icebreaker. The question is, say your name in your favorite book. And Janine, they randomly point to someone in the circle. Janine, you start. Okay, so that's a bad example. A good example would be, hey, everybody, we're going to do an icebreaker to help us meet new people. I'm hosting this event so we can all meet some new people. I know the icebreakers might seem cheesy, but trust me, they'll help you meet new people. I'll go first, and then we'll go around the circle this way. And you turn to the person to your right, if you're going to invite, you say, would that be okay, David, if we go this way? Will you go next? And hopefully David says yes. So then you go first. You say, we're going to go around the circle, say your name, what you do for work, and one of your favorite things for breakfast. I'll go first. And then you would go answer the icebreaker, model the behavior that you want, and then go around the circle in the way that you said. What I find is that people with social anxiety or introverts, they just don't want surprises. They wanna know what's gonna happen. And if you can help manage that by clearly saying, also note, I hope I'm not talking too much, that I said the why of why we're doing the icebreaker to help you meet new people. Telling people the why really helps them get bought in to want to participate. And I know you posted thousands of these parties and including a conference, which I wanted to kind of get into in a little bit. But one of the things that I'm sure like, you know, have you ever had somebody who maybe was, you know, someone that like you invite that was invited to it, but it was like, you know, you invited a friend and you told a friend to invite their friends. And maybe there's someone in there who just maybe for whatever reason, like wasn't really gelling with everyone else at the party and maybe took an icebreaker in a direction that you didn't even mean to. But, you know, how do you kind of come back from that if you are hosting your first or second or third party and you have somebody who just goes in a completely different direction and either like, you know, sours the mood or just doesn't want to participate? The best example I can give is that you as the host need to be willing to be a leader and to cut people off if they talk for too long. So I actually don't have examples of people saying sort of inappropriate stuff. It's more that they just ramble on and on and just keep talking for too long. So here's how to fix that. You would have a friend or a partner or a neighbor be a plant and have them go after you and ask them, say, hey, will you talk too long? Because then I'm going to cut you off. So everybody can see me sort of cut you off. And so that's what you would do. You would have them go too long. And then as they keep talking, you say, okay, thank you so much. Hey, a little bit too long. We're going to go to the next. Thank you very much. Next person. And you cutting them off shows everybody, hey, we need this to move quickly. Um, That's such a good tip. And it's such a good advice to have that plan or plan or someone that you know really well. And he's willing to kind of like almost back you up and be that example. Shifting gears a little bit, kind of going back in a little bit more, which is I know you obviously are a founder um, and has gotten a lot of benefits from hosting these events. And you kind of mentioned you were an introvert as well, am I? Um, and you kind of mentioned that like these events have really helped you kind of both in kind of a 
your former business um, and everything else kind of grow it. What are some ways for someone who's a founder who might be, you know, thinking about hosting events, but are maybe scared to do that or not sure if they have the time commitment for it or there's a lot of different reasons for it. What are some of the ways that, you know, it's been able to help you when it comes to expanding your own network? Oh my God. Hosting events for me grew this weird network of, I don't know what to call it, loose connections or weak ties or acquaintances. It's those people that aren't my best friends, but I would see like maybe once or twice a year. And I found that growing that network of keeping me and my business top of mind among those people just turbocharged my business growth. And it's the reason I suggest people host because you never know where a new business partner, romantic partner, investor, employee, co-founder, customer, client could come from. But I've found that having a strong network beyond just like what's on your LinkedIn or whatever, right? We're all digitally saturated with too much stuff. Hosting these events can really turbocharge your growth to help you build those big relationships. Yeah. Do you have a personal example that you can kind of talk to you, like maybe specifically because yeah. Yeah. So when I was launching my last company that was called Museum Hack, so we did these renegade museum tours and renegade means we would hire stand-up comedians and Broadway actors to be the tour guides at big museums like the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. And one of the places that we ended up actually making a lot of money was in this corporate team building. So that means we would sell our same tours that we'd sell for a date night to a couple. We'd sell it to 25 people from a company who all want to bring their whole team there. I never thought about doing that business until someone who had come to one of my parties came to one of my tours and said, oh my God, can I bring my team to this? And I was like, I guess so. I've never done that. He's like, that's fine. That's fine. We'll pay for it. That whole multi-million dollar sector of our business grew out of somebody that I only knew through my social events by building my network. Yeah, that is so awesome. And so like kind of shows it power of like serendipity and just kind of putting yourself out there. Oh my gosh. Putting, growing the surface area of serendipity is I think what networking events are supposed to be about, right? But I found I would go to these networking events and they were just so bad, or at least I wouldn't do well. I just wouldn't meet people, not the type of people I wanted to meet. I felt like I was a loser, like I was the problem. And ultimately I realized it wasn't that I was bad, it's that the events were bad. So that's why I've kind of tried to invent a whole new format for these networking events. I love it. What do you think, you know, if you were to kind of dive into it, had similar, I can definitely relate. Where do you think, you know, a lot of these quote unquote networking events go wrong? I think that the host doesn't do a good enough job of actually doing host duties. What do I mean by that? I mean that they just invite a ton of people. They think more people is better. They try to fill up a crowded, loud bar or nightclub. And they just don't make it, you know, they don't make it easy to actually mix and mingle. You know, let's just look at name tags as an example. Super simple, silly. Many networking events actually do use name tags. So I probably shouldn't talk about that. But name tags really help you to meet new people. They do it in the following way. They show that it's not a party of clicks. 
of everybody has their existing friends and you're an outsider. No, name tag show that we're all on the same level, that this is a safe space to go meet new people and have some conversations. I also think that most networking events go bad in that they're too transactional. People are there to figure out what they can get or what they can sell to other people. The joke that I say is you can host the best networking event in the world as long as you never call it a networking event. You can't call it a networking event. That's just, uh, people hate that term. So anyhow, that's some ways where it goes bad. You know, when you lead these rounds of introductions, you help people to create new connections, to meet new people, to not only create the connections, but also to end the connections. Does that make sense? Because a lot of people have trouble having not just new conversations, but they have a hard time ending conversations. They're way too nice to be like, okay, I'm done here. I'm going to go talk to somebody else. Yeah, that totally makes sense. And getting into it a little bit more. So let's say you're an introverted founder. You kind of have the inclination of doing this, but there's a lot of other objections, right? Like, you know, what happens if I throw a cocktail party and nobody shows up? Or what happens if I throw it and only three people show up and it becomes really awkward because I said there's going to be 10 people. How do you kind of overcome and kind of resist some of those fears that kind of keep you from not doing it? It's so funny you mentioned that about nobody coming because that's the number one fear that people have is that nobody will show up and that it will be so awkward. And so actually my book is all about making sure that your party is filled with people. It's why I tell people, do not plan a party less than three weeks away from today. Give yourself plenty of time to fill up your guest list and send reminder messages. It's why I tell people really to only host your parties on Tuesday or Wednesday nights. Those are days that are not socially competitive. So that number one fear is really what I spend like the most of my time on because I've talked to hundreds of party hosts now, and I know that pretty much as long as they can get 15 people to show up, the party will be a success. You know, they should do name tags and icebreakers, but that is the one thing is getting enough people to show up. And so there's a lot of stuff that's in my book about that. Things like the two-tiered invite, right? Kind of a double opt-in invitation, collecting RSVPs, sending reminder messages, using this secret weapon I have called guest bios to boost the excitement and enthusiasm and also lock people in to attending. Those are these little tricks that I've learned from hosting. Gosh, I crunched the numbers recently. And I think on average over the last 15 years, I've hosted one event per week, which is just crazy. So these are all my secrets that I've learned along the way. I love it. I three follow-up questions from what you just shared there. So you mentioned first and foremost, you have 15 people, like 15 people is kind of the like magic number. What is the lowest amount that could be successful? And what is the highest amount that can be successful using your own formula within the two hour cocktail party? I found that 15 is really the minimum. And in fact, I'm kind of now suggesting people to go up to 16 or 17 in case there are one or two no-shows. I find for a first-time host, really the maximum is about 22 or 23. More than that, and things just get to be complicated. It's too hard to manage your icebreakers. 
you really can't host and accurately make introductions with a bigger group than that. Now, if you're listening to this and you're advanced with premier social skills, okay, maybe you could go slightly higher, but really that 16 to 22 is the sweet spot for a happy hour cocktail party sort of vibe. I love it. And then I can imagine, you know, besides no one showing up being a big fear or only having like three people and then you have a really awkward dynamic, particularly if those people don't all know each other. I feel like another fear is obviously if you're a founder and you have a whole bunch of other things that you have to do within your business and, you know, you have a family, you have social life, there's a lot going on. How do you yeah. manage to make it? And you've even mentioned that you're hosting like one event a week. That seems really, really impressive. If you, even if you're doing like one event a quarter, that could be intimidating to find the time to do that. Like what are some ways that you can kind of systematize it so it isn't such a big hurdle to overcome? I do recommend to people to host about once a quarter. That's my kind of average that I think is a good cadence for the average person. And I'll, you know, I'm not going to lie. Your first one might be difficult. The first time you do anything, write a blog, learn how to program. The first time is the hardest, but I promise you it only gets easier. And I'll give you an example. I, I talked to a woman, her name is Tatiana. She lives in Seattle and she has a funny business. She does stroller mom workouts. So they're workouts for other moms with strollers. Um, and the last time I talked to her, she had hosted her fourth party. And she said, oh, my God, it was my birthday party, actually. And it was the easiest birthday party I've ever hosted. She said, I had all my supplies in a little box. I knew exactly what to do. I had the muscle memory of how to do the invites, how to set up the RSVP page. She was like, I could do it with my eyes closed the fourth time. And she said, it was the best birthday I've ever had. And that really made me happy. And that's what I feel is that this is a skill that you can learn how to do. And I promise you, even if you're busy, even if you have a family, sometimes we find that as we get older and more established in business, we actually need new friends and new connections more than ever. That's such a good observation. And it's such a great example. Um, and I know you also have really strong opinions about why these events should always be live and cocktail parties. What are some of the things, and a lot of people, maybe you possess that and go, oh, let's do online events. Why, in your opinion, do you think online events just do not work? Online events are really hard because they don't give you the one-on-one -on -one conversation time. It's much harder for you to bounce around and to feel that excitement. I don't know. I just feel like online events are so flat compared to an in-person event. I've never really had success in meeting people. Maybe because I have ADD and just a short attention span. It's very hard for me to stay locked in and tuned in on an online event. Um, that makes a ton of sense. And when it comes to going back to what you kind of said a little bit earlier in the conversation about being a great host, and I know you have a bunch of amazing tips within your um, book, and I definitely recommend everyone should read it when it comes to like having a host of Parkit and um, having like, you know, a whole bunch of, you know, different like, you know, beverages and keeping it simple, but also like really being really present. Are there some like non-obvious things that a first time or a second time party organizer is going to forget or maybe not do that are really helpful when it comes to just having a great experience. Here's some non-obvious things. So I mentioned one of them already, which was to consider hosting on a Tuesday or Wednesday night. Those are easier for people to say yes to. They are also less likely to get you bumped 
due to other scheduling conflicts. So sometimes people think, oh, I'll host on Friday or Saturday, but then stuff comes up, family, work, other more important parties, frankly, and you're likely to get cancellations. And it's why I think I have so much high attendance rate because I host on a Tuesday, Wednesday night because I don't get bumped. Other non-obvious things, set your party length as two hours. Now that's weird. Like what? There's an end time for your event? But even because you're hosting a Tuesday or Wednesday night, it shows people this is not like a rager, crazy party where we're all going to get wasted. This is like an efficient social gathering. I think the idea of even ending your party is very controversial. People are like, oh my God, how do I end the party? Don't people just leave when they want to? I say, no, look, this is counterintuitive, but you want to end it when things are going well. You want to end on a high note. Don't just let the energy dissolve and people be like, okay, I guess I should leave now. Those are some non-obvious. I guess the last one that I would say is many people think, oh, if somebody's coming to my house, I have to feed them. I have to feed them dinner. Well, I think that's not the case. I tell people, in fact, I say, I would rather someone leave my party hungry rather than bored. My job is to work on the people, the connections, the conversations. My guests can feed themselves. And don't get me wrong. If you're listening to this and you want to host a dinner party, you absolutely can. But I found after hosting dozens of dinner parties and hundreds of cocktail parties that a cocktail party was so much easier and I got to grow my network even bigger and faster. Yeah, I love that. And I feel like having a dinner party also complicates things because then you have to think about food allergies and what, you know, what you're serving, you know, are you going to cook it yourself and all the dynamics there that keep it simple. And dietary things and stuff like that. It's a, uh, it's hard. Absolutely. You said something else there, which is like ending the party on a high note by like, you know, having it in time and saying like, you know, it's like a really good way to go about that. Um, do you recommend kind of like ending it with kind of that second value additive icebreaker or is there something else that you're doing to make sure that it doesn't become awkward of picking people out? I do end it close to that value additive icebreaker. Let's say that your party is 6 to 8 p.m. Mm -hmm. I would run the value additive icebreaker at around 7.20 or 7.25 so that it finishes around, you know, 7.40 or so. And then I'd make a last call. I'd say, I'd say to everybody, I'd say, hey, thank you, everybody. That was awesome. You know, we do that icebreaker to help you go talk to somebody new. We have about 20 minutes left here before we start to wind down. So use this as an excuse to go say hi to somebody new who maybe you haven't spoken to yet. That's an example of how I transition from that last icebreaker to giving them a heads up or a last call that the party would be over soon. Yeah, that's super smart. Shifting gears a little bit and another topic that's completely unrelated, but like, so you were at the two-hour cocktail party. There's so many great tips on that, but I actually don't even want to talk about the book. I actually want to talk a little bit more about the process of writing the book. What okay. was that process like for you? Like how long did it Oh take? my God. How did you actually write it? It was so hard. I wouldn't recommend it to my worst enemy. Um, and in fact, you know this because you do a lot of online content. And the beauty of online content is that we can publish it quickly. We can update it as things change. It's bite-sized, so to speak just so much easier. But the idea of putting something in a book that's printed and locked down and permanent was very scary to me. 
And I'm a perfectionist. I don't know if you are. Are you a perfectionist? I would just say I'm a recovering perfectionist. Oh. Uh, I try to, I definitely have perfectionist tendencies, but I try to like realize I'm like, okay, is this 80% or better? And then I just need to let it go. See, that's so nice. I couldn't do that with my book. I couldn't say, is this 80%? Because I was like, I can't, this is my one thing. So anyhow, my experience was it just took me a long time, probably five or six years of working on my book, editing it, proofing it, drafting it, testing it. It took me a long time to make it. But I hope, I hope you know, my goal is that it'll be a book that will stand the test of time and still be relevant a few years from now. I love it. So I obviously, this was like, you know, years in the making. What was the kind of the signal that you realized, okay, this is good enough that I need to publish this? Like, you know, what was the thing that kind of got you over, like, you know, overanalyzing it and then not publishing it at all? My situation was weird because I almost published it right before COVID. And then obviously COVID happened. We're all at home, lockdown, quarantine. And like, that's the worst time to release a book about having parties in your house. So I actually put the book on ice for a while. And it wasn't until, gosh, I guess I moved to Austin, Texas from New York City. And when I settled here, I ran my playbook. I didn't know many people, but I just started to host events saying, I want to build my friend group. I want to meet people. And every month I was hosting a little event or meetup. And man, I built such a great network of friends. I was like, okay, I'm like, I literally am walking the talk of, of doing exactly what my book says when you move to a new town. Now it's time to get this thing out there. I love it. And what were some of the most surprising insights that came from, you know, the process of writing a book and then publishing it? One thing that I remember was how much people really connect with the stories. And it made me wish and, you know, that I had written down some of those stories from my earlier parties, funny moments and memories. The advice I would have for anyone who's thinking that someday they might want to be writing a book is be collecting your stories now. Even if they're silly and they seem like, oh, that's not relevant, or oh, I'm sure I'll remember that. Trust me, write down your stories. That's what people want. They don't want the encyclopedia of this, that, or the other, not facts. They wanna be entertained. And we do that through great stories. I love it. I could chat about throwing parties forever and ever and ever, but I always like to ask every single one of my guests, um, a couple of lightning round questions before the end of these episodes. So this one is particularly relevant for you, but like, obviously you've thrown thousands, hundreds, if not thousands of cocktail parties by now. If you could invite one celebrity, you know, that, you know, you don't know at all to one of these parties, who would you choose and why? One celebrity who I don't know that I could invite to one of these parties. And they would show up. Who would you choose and why? Um, I would like to invite Elon Musk. I recently read the Walter Isaacson biography about Elon, and it really made me just understand how complicated of a guy he is. Um, and so I would like, I don't know if he would enjoy the party, but i but if I'm being able to grant a wish, I would love to meet him. Yeah, good answer. And kind of the flip side of that, let's say somebody who is a historical figure, you know, there's not a lot anymore, oh. but like, if you could have one sort of guest that you could, that, you know, if you could bring back, who would you choose and why? I've thought about this one. And you know, my answer, my answer is a young Ben Franklin. 
So not the Ben Franklin that's like the French diplomat, older, what we think about, but the Ben Franklin of his late 20s, when he was writing in the journal and his diaries and trying to improve himself and growing his business and really on the come up, I would love to meet that version of Ben Franklin. I love it. Um, I feel like that might, you actually might be the second person who said that. Um, young Ben Franklin, really? Not young Ben Franklin, but Ben Franklin, for sure. Cool, good, good. I love it. And what's an unconventional skill that you have that you're secretly very proud of? I'm a decent juggler and I got into juggling when I was spending so much time on the computer, just like not really tapped into my body. So I started juggling as a way to like de-stress and get off screen. And I can juggle... I probably should practice more, but that's a skill that I have that I'm proud of. I love it. And if you could send a message to yourself 10 years in the past, what would that message be? 10 years in the past, I was in New York City. I believe I was starting my company Museum Hack around this time. And yet I wasn't charging money for the tours. I was really just figuring it out. I would have suggested to myself to charge more money sooner. You know, I really hesitated to do that, but it turns out that when I did charge for them, people respected me more. They took the tours more seriously. It was a win-win. Love it. Um, it's been really, really great chatting with you, Nick. Where can listeners find you online? I'm online on all the social medias at, at Nick Gray News. That's N-I-C-K-G-R-A-Y News, N-E-W-S dot com. I'm particularly active on Twitter slash X and Instagram. And I'm also on YouTube and TikTok. Um, and then I have a website, which is nickgraynews.com with a newsletter. And then on my page for the book, which I'll include in the show notes, I've got like 17 things to do before your next party how to host a housewarming party or how to plan a networking event. I write a lot on the internet. So I'm a habitual oversharer. I love it. And for everyone who's listening, everyone out in the Remote Worker podcast who's listening to this, highly, highly recommend getting and reading Nick's book, The Two Hour Cocktail Party. Thank you again for coming on the podcast, Nick. Thank you so much for having me, Jessica. More parties. Thank you for listening to the Remote Work Drive podcast. Please visit our site, theremoteworkdrive.com, to learn more about remote work trends and insights.